Welcome to the Focus on Why podcast. I'm Amy Rowlandson and I ask my guests one simple question, why? Focusing on the importance of why, I share with you the relatable, uplifting and inspiring conversations I have with people from all walks of life. This podcast will encourage you to focus on your why to enable and empower you to achieve the success you desire. Have a purpose, have a plan, focus on why. Before we get started, are you thinking of creating a podcast or are you a podcast host already? As a podcast strategist, I can help you to launch or relaunch a purposeful and profitable podcast, which will inspire, entertain and educate a global audience. Simply book in a one-to-one call with me right now via the Calendly link in the show notes and together we'll focus on the purpose of your podcast. Today on Focus on Why, I am joined by Steve Buston. Hello, Steve. How's it going? Hey there, Amy. I'm very well. How are you doing? Yeah, good. Thank you. It's been a really sunny day, delightful day compared compared to the last couple of days, which have been horrendous. Mm-hmm. But we're not here to talk about the weather. <laughs> oh, why not? That's always a good topic to start with. It's a very British thing to do, it isn't, is, it? isn't it? But, or maybe it's a worldwide thing. It's just that we seem to have such drastic... Anyway, I'm going into the weather. I'm not going to talk about the weather. <laughs> Tell me, Steve, what is it you're doing at the moment? At the moment, I think it's fair to say the majority of my time is spent as a public speaking coach. Uh, I work with individuals who are presenting, speaking, pitching, for whatever reason, whether that's people who are looking to be professional speakers, whether that's people who are pitching for business, whether that's people who are looking to speak at conferences as part of their business development strategy. Um, So I help them to get their speeches right, to get their speaking skills in order, and to practice. So one of the things I'm uh, really keen on is this whole idea of critique and feedback um, for speakers to make sure that they are as good as they can be. And you talk about getting your speaking skills in order. Can you isolate it or does it fold into other areas? Oh, it absolutely overlaps with other areas. Um, you know, it, it obviously overlaps with your expertise. It overlaps with whatever it is that you are passionate about, the points you want to make, the people you're speaking to. Um, and I think it also overlaps into business skills. It overlaps into life experience, because so often we bring our life experiences to the stage or to the screen, uh, you know, if we're, if we're doing stuff online. Um, and I think, you know, I I'm a big believer that actually we are one person in terms of business and personal life. Um, And while it is important to to maintain boundaries and to make sure that you are having a personal life, particularly if you're running your own business, um, I think the idea that you can somehow be one person at work and one person uh, at home is is wrong. I think if you're if you're trying to pull that off, you're actually going to end up being schizophrenic. So, yeah, so I think that I think there's also overlap there that, you know, there's so much of, you know, we might be putting on our, our, our best business face, but actually we are still the same person inside. I mean, I've always said the biggest compliment I can get if I'm on stage as a speaker is if people say you're exactly the same on stage as you are off. I take that as a huge compliment. So stage or screen and everything in between, just one person. Yeah, that, that, yeah, I love I love that concept. And you talked about the different elements that fold into this. That it's a life experience. It's your it's your passions and what you're passionate about, and and the expertise in your business. How did you arrive to this point, Steve? 
<laughs> do you want you want the biography? Do you? <laughs> um, well, I'm a, I'm a journalist by background. Um, don't hate me. I've never hacked a phone. I promise. Um, so I'm yeah. I suppose I've always been in, interested in communications. Even when I was a kid, when I was about eight or nine, I started a family newspaper called News Weekly. Uh, it didn't appear weekly. It has to be said, and it didn't have any news in it. Um, but I used to produce it on a little typewriter, and then it would pass around my two siblings and my parents, and they'd be forced to read it. Um, and it would be a mixture of, of, of sort of features and, and articles. And it was, yeah. And so I've always been in, intrigued by communication and how we communicate. And I've all was also, I suppose, I was one of those kids who always wanted to get up in assembly and speak. And, you know, we went to church and I was a kid and, you know, I would want to giving the readings and all this sort of stuff. I've always quite enjoyed speaking to an audience. Uh, professionally, I, yeah, I started as a journalist, worked for BBC News for many years. Um, Worked across radio and TV news, uh, based initially at Broadcasting House and then at Television Centre. And then I crossed to the dark side when I was headhunted to go and uh, become PR director for a dot-com. Now, this was, in nine, this was in 2000, actually, uh, which was really the first big dot-com bubble. And as startups at the time were, due, were sort of prone to do, we burnt our way through three and a half million pounds of venture capital money and promptly went bust. Um, I'm glad it wasn't my money, but I have to say we had a lot of fun doing it. Um, I mean, we really did have the we did have the the warehouse offices in Shoreditch, and we had staff days out at Health Farms, and we did live the whole dot com sort of dream, which was I mean, it was great fun. But I I wasn't the only one who could see that the business was not going to succeed. It became quite clear that the business model wasn't right. Watching a business go out of business taught me a huge amount about business. Because interestingly, having come from the BBC, which is not a profit-driven organisation, I didn't really understand the, the, the drive for profit and the need for liquidity and all those sorts of things until I went into that dot-com. When that went down, I then uh, went freelance, really, and I, I was just taking odds and tods of freelance work, I thought, to tide myself over until I got a, quote, proper job. But it was actually an employment agency turned around to me and said, we don't think we're going to be able to place you. They said, you come up to sort of a relatively senior level in journalism, and you've crossed into a sort of senior role in PR. You haven't come up agency side. You haven't really come up in-house. The sort of people who we would be able to place you with don't know what to do with you. And actually, at the time, I was devastated. But in fact, it was probably the best thing they could have said, because it made me realise that I was going to have to do something on my own. I couldn't, I sort of thought that actually, if I put my CV out with agencies, it, you know, something would come in. So... That was when I was sort of suddenly thought, well, actually, this freelance work is doing okay. I'm making a go of this. I'm making a living. Um, so I stuck with it. And I've now been in business 20 years. In fact, actually, it's 20 years this month um, that I've been in business. So initially, I was uh, offering PR consultancy, but I was also working as a freelance journalist, which is a slightly unholy combination. And I did have to be very careful that I was very clear when I was working with my PR hat on and when I was working with my journalist hat on and occasionally I would pitch to the same editor so I'd have to say look this is a PR pitch or this is an editorial pitch and even more occasionally an editor would say to a PR pitch oh do you want to write that up and I'm like no I can't actually professionally I just can't go there you know I had to keep those two separate but relatively early on in the PR business uh, people started asking me to go in and run training for them I was a very early adopter with social media. I had a flatmate when I first moved to London um, who was an even earlier adopter, and he got me onto social media. So when I say social media, I mean, this is just the internet generally. 
um, I used to, we used to have a, we used to run um, CompuServe, which I suspect you are far too young to remember, but um, we were on CompuServe. And I was then became part of the team that introduced the internet into the BBC newsroom um, and, you know, got people online and, and even to things like encouraging them to use email and all this stuff. So anyway, I knew, and then I actually met my husband on social, on a very early form of social media, uh, just as the dot com was going down. So people started saying, well, would you come in and talk to us about this thing, social media? What is it? Why should we be interested in it? What could it do for us? And I went in and did a couple of training courses for organizations. Um, and then somebody said, oh, would you come to a to our conference and speak about this? And I was like, yeah, I can do that. Went to this conference. Somebody saw me there and said, oh, could you come to our conference and speak about that? So I went and did that. Did a few of those sorts of gigs. And then somebody said, oh, yeah, actually, you're good on stage. Do you do presentation skills training? And I was like, I do now. Um, so I was I realized that actually, you know, this there was a training side of the business building as well. The PR company grew and I ended up taking on a couple of people who worked with me. Uh, and then I had one big client went, um, well, tits up, quite frankly. Uh, they, started, they stopped paying me. I was still paying the staff. I ended up tens of thousands of pounds out of pocket. Um, and I had to let the staff go. And that was, yeah, that was a big learning curve. Um, and it, we ended up, you know, we ended up, they were taken to court by HMRC. And I think we all got, I think out of, of a, what I ended up with was a 12, 13,000 pound debt was in the end, because um, they did pay a bit of what they owed me. And I think of that, I got 70 pounds or something. It was like, you know, fractions of a penny and a pound. Um, so that was, at that point, I, that was when I started to realize I wasn't sure this was quite what I wanted to be doing long term. And I was working with a business coach. And she said to me, if a client rings you up tomorrow and says, we're going to pay you a full day, full fee day, what do you want to do? And I straight away went, I'll go and do presentation skills. And she said, they're not PR. It's like, well, no, presentation skills. So she said, so why are you still doing PR? And I just thought, it was, it was funny, it was a real light bulb moment. I was like, you're absolutely right. Why am I still doing something that's not really, it's not making me happy anymore. Um, I'm not particularly enjoying it. I'm good at it. I know I am. I always have been. But it's not actually floating my boat anymore. So I ended up sacking my last PR client, um, which was a bit of an event. And I missed the retainers. I have to say it. That was one of the joys of having an agency is the retainers. Um, but that's when I went, moved full time into training, coaching and speaking. Uh, and that's been the best part of 10 years now. So, yeah, so I've then sort of now do a mixture of speech coaching, speaking. And also I do a lot of work as a, as a compare and host. So I do a lot of comparing at conferences and events and, and auctions and parties and all that sort of thing. So, yeah, that's um, 20, that's 20 years reduced to about four minutes, I think. So, yeah, that's about it. Fantastic. If only all my guests could be so concise. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I, what I want to just sort of pull on a thread here is you said that you were writing at the age of eight and nine, your your fabulous family weekly newsletter and and also that you were always desperate to speak in assembly and desperate to speak in church. And and yet that sort of fell away and then you've come back to it. Yeah. How do you see that as being purposeful or accidental or neither or, or both? Well, first of all, I think I don't think it ever really fell away, even, you know, because broadcasting. I mean, although I wasn't particularly on camera or on my, you know, being in in in. in 
particularly in broadcast news, there's, you know, it's all about communication and getting a message across and, and things. And also I then became chair of the London Gay Men's Chorus, which when I took over was a small group of 30 guys singing in pubs. And by the time I stepped down three years later was 120 guys singing on national TV and touring internationally. Um, but through, that led me to doing quite a lot more public speaking. So I was speaking on stage at events and um, uh, I ended up comparing or hosting the vigil that took place after the Admiral Duncan bombing, um, when they, there was a nail bombing at a gay pub in London. And I ended up hosting the vigil that took place in Soho Square a couple of days later. Um, so it was all, it's always been part of my life. It's always been, but I don't think at the time I realized that it was an option to be professional. And I was, yeah, so I think in terms of, was it purpose-driven? No, but I think it was ultimately, it was about recognizing what I was good at and realizing that that was an avenue to not just making a living, but doing something I enjoyed. And, and that to me is a big driver. It's, it's gotta be some, you know, I've gotta be doing something that I enjoy uh otherwise you know why do it sort of thing I, i've often said to people if you get sunday night blues you're in the wrong job you know if you if you are going to bed on a sunday night thinking oh god it's back to work tomorrow you know i'm fine yeah we all prefer a weekend to a weekday i get that but if you are actually dreading what it is you've got to go and do or it's a real you know downer you're in the wrong job go and do something else and and there is a there's a real inertia around that i think that people feel that once they're in something they have to be stuck in it and sometimes actually taking a complete right turn uh, can be a, a quite a refreshing thing to do. So purpose-wise, I think it was about recognizing, yeah, that I had a talent and that actually that talent could be monetized. And going back to that moment where you felt devastated because the recruitment agent had said to you, don't know where to put you anymore. Mm. And yet you said, in reflection it was the best thing that happened to you what would be the alternative sliding doors moment where would you be now hmm well interestingly i mean it's i think it's one of the things that's that's awakened my interest in feedback um and how people give feedback and things because actually by somebody being honest with me i was able to move on and do something more useful sliding doors moment i suspect i would have gone into a pr agency um, and, and and probably actually could I think I would have, you know could have been quite senior in a PR agency. I'm not sure I would have ever gone into my own PR agency. I don't think I would have run my own business. I probably have ended up working for somebody else. Probably would be earning significantly more money than I'm earning now. But I would also be working significantly more hours than I'm working now. I may not have met my husband because actually I would have got, that was linked to where I happened to be based for the um, the dot com. Um, so yeah, I think life would have taken a very different path. And I try not to get into what ifs or what might have been. You know, I've had occasionally people said, oh, you know, do you regret leaving the BBC? And I'm like, well, no, because at the time it was the right decision. I was a bit bored at the BBC. I wasn't, my career wasn't going quite where I wanted it to go. I was looking around. I needed something new. I needed a fresh challenge. Uh, you know, and I think it's so easy to start using hindsight to start, oh, actually, I should have done that or I shouldn't have done that. I think it's a fool's game because you actually do need to, you have to just take a decision of what feels right at the moment and then own it. And it fine, five years, down, five years down the line, you might've made a different decision, but at the time, if that's what felt right, you've got to do it. And, and I think I've also, it's not that I'm short-termist, but I'm, I recognize the, the importance of living in the here and now. And I think if something is wrong right now, what can I do to change that? Um, you know, I don't have a great life plan. I don't have, 
plan for where I want to be in five years, 10 years, let alone 20 years. I'm like, this is where I'm at now. This is what's working. This is what isn't. What's in my control? What's not in my control? Uh, so I try to make decisions on that basis rather than seeing it as some part of some great overall uh, long-term plan. And your perspective, Steve, which is very much in the moment, which is fabulous because it, it allows you to really appreciate what you're doing and be present for for those around you in, in your working and, and live and personal environment. How has that manifested? Has that come through any kind of personal development or is it just the way you are? It's just the way I am. I've never, if I say I've never really done any personal development, I've never done any formal personal development, certainly. But I do know that I need to challenge myself from time to time. I know that I, I, need, I need to have, I need to be taken out of my comfort zone from time to time. I wouldn't be doing what I do, particularly as a speaker and compare, if I didn't like being taken out of my comfort zone. Um, so I have to, I sometimes have to force myself to do it. One of the things I do a lot of now is um, improv. Uh, and I've been doing, I did improv comedy for some time, and I now do a lot of musical improv, so making up songs on the spot. Um, and one of the, it's funny, I did a course last year with uh, uh, musical improv, and the, the night of the first class, part of me was like, I really don't want to go and do this. Why on earth did I sign up for this? And I went, and actually I loved it. And it was because it just, it does challenge me, and it does take me out of my comfort zone, and it does just make me, ah! And I think every time you get in, you need a moment, you know, you need something that just makes you wonder, you know, why on earth did I make this decision? Um, you know, I'm not one for high adrenaline sports. I'm not one for um, living life dangerously. But I think you do still need to, to be taken out of your comfort zone from time to time. Uh, so, yeah, does that answer your question? <laughs> yeah, more so. And it, it's really interesting because the the uh, moment i don't know how to actually put that into quotes or when, <laughs> when, when we're going to refer use this in in uh, <laughs> describing it to people it's like a ah, moment but yeah i i recognize those moments a huge amount and and every day i'm always thinking how can i push myself i mean not every day does it happen but it's always there as a as a, a development and a growth and a challenge for me and my word for this year is adventure Right. And like and like you, I don't like long term plans. Mm. I, I, you know, I do say have a purpose, have a plan, focus on why as a guide. And that works with my values. It works with my beliefs. And listening to, to what you're saying here, it, I echo quite a lot of the accidental career, the accidental going from one moment to the moment. And that's OK. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And a lot of me, for me, it is driven. And if you, yeah, I suppose this takes us to, our, to, the, to the core of the question about why and, and what the purpose is. You know, to me, it's am I enjoying it? Am I going to enjoy it? Is this something that's going to be fun? And, and yes, I need to push myself and go through that moment of why on earth did I say yes to this? Uh, and I've done, you know, I've done speaking gigs, I've done comparing gigs where I've just been stood backstage thinking, why on earth did I say yes to this? And occasionally you just end up going, just think of the money and get on with it. Um, but yeah, I, I, it's got to be something that's got to be fun and it's got to give me pleasure and it's got to give me satisfaction. And that might sound horribly selfish. And yet, you know, I get a lot of satisfaction from seeing other people succeed. You know, I love coaching people and suddenly seeing them have a, a light bulb moment or suddenly have a breakthrough where they go, oh, OK, I get this. And ah, yes, that works and, and things. And that gives me a great deal of pleasure. Um, uh, you know, so and it's like, you know, if I'm on stage, if I get a laugh out of an audience, that gives me a great deal of pleasure. 
So that's why I go back and keep on doing it. And it's not that I'm driven by some higher purpose of changing people's lives and transforming them and all this sort of stuff. But if I can give them what they need, whether that, and hopefully that includes pleasure, and sorry, that sounds slightly smutty, um, but it's one of those things where, you know, I want to help them move forward. And that gives me the pleasure and enjoyment and satisfaction that I'm seeking from life. So, yeah, I will, and it's not that I'm just, I'm, I don't think I'm a hedonist, um, but that's that's a lot of what drives me and drives the decisions. Is, is, is this going to be fun? And there are times where I'll, I'll try it, and if something isn't fun, then I'll find, fine, I'll stop, but at least I tried it. Um, you know, but I'm not, I'm not a thrill seeker particularly, uh, but I am, yeah, I know I need to challenge myself. And I can recognise in myself when I am in a bit of a rut, uh, when I need to do something new and when I need to move forward. And it's interesting at the moment, professionally, I mean, you know, things, things moved last year because of the pandemic over the last couple of years. And I mean, as you know, Amy, I launched a couple of um, different things. I launched Speech Club, which is a, 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 it's like a book club, but for speeches. And I launched uh, Critique Club, which is a, a coaching program, um, which I know you, you know you know very well. And those have been great. And they're now bedding in. And I'm, but interestingly, when I first launched them, I got really nervous. And even Speech Club now, I still get nervous before doing those. And it is something, if there is part of me is like, what happens if I get challenged? What happens if somebody disagrees? What, somebody, what happens if I forget what I'm going to say? And it's like, it does, you know, they all go fine. I've done 11 of them now. There's number 12 is in a couple of weeks' time. And they're fine. They go really well. People enjoy them. People get a lot out of them. And that's what drives me to, to keep on doing it. Um, so, but I'm aware now that this year I'm just thinking, okay, I've got those, they're running, I've got to, you know, they've got to, I've got to keep filling them, and there is a, an element of repetition to it, but that's fine. So what's next? You know, what am I going to do next? And I'm now thinking professionally, I've got a new product which I'm about to, to take to market, which is sort of a corporate version of the critique club model. But I'm also now thinking, what do I want to do outside work? The last couple of years have been very, very work focused partly because of the, you know, the pandemic and having to pivot and all that sort of stuff. So this year, I'm determined to do some stuff outside work that just gives me pleasure and brings pleasure to other people and that I enjoy. Um, and if it bleeds into work at some point, fine, great. But I'm not, you know, I'm actually thinking of starting a podcast on something completely unrelated to what I do professionally. And it's just, and a part of me wants to make sure that it is done for, for pleasure and, and because it opens up a different part of my life rather than because actually I need to do this for work. So what I'm picking up on here is that you mentioned there's no higher purpose, but there's still this level of being led by something. And I see it as being pleasure led. Mm. That That is the focus. That is at the core of everything you're doing. It has to tick that box. And and from that perspective, you also said that you're not into high adrenaline sports, but you do get the adrenaline from your work. Yeah. In a huge amount. Yes. And also from improv and things. And I, you know, I will. And yeah, absolutely. You stand on stage, you suddenly put yourself in front of an audience you don't know. And yes, there's absolutely adrenaline and and, and the associated high and, and then the associated crash afterwards. Um, but yeah, it is. So there is an adrenaline rush. But and I, it's odd, isn't it? Because to so many people, they would rather go. I don't know, parasending than stand on the stage and deliver a speech. Um, I have a T-shirt, which I bought at a conference a couple of years ago, which says, your greatest fear is how I make a living. And there is an element of truth in that. You know, I'm aware to some people, the idea of giving a speech is just absolutely terrifying. 
Um, I was finding where I was wearing the T-shirt a while back, you know, actually in a garden centre or something. Somebody read it and went, what, you work with spiders? And I'm like, no, actually, no, I don't. Because uh, actually, I would not work with spiders. They are not. They are one of my greatest fears. I hate spiders. It would be a great social media post, actually, to to put up there and just say, what do I do as for a living? And, yeah, absolutely. And, and if you know, don't say anything and just see how many different responses or right. different careers you could have. I will do that. That's a really great idea. Thank you for that. I will do that. And I will yeah. report back. Yeah, look forward to seeing how many. Well, you essentially you're just identifying everybody's phobias in the world, aren't you? Yeah, completely. Yeah. Yes. Interesting to see what they say. So not a thrill seeker, but still very much pushing and exploring and growing. Mm. What what are the core values that you hold tight to your core? Uh, fun, uh, laughter, and satisfaction. I like to, I like to see a job well done. You know, I will see throughout something through to the bitter end, and I'm I'm. Um, you know, I know other people who are not finishers. People will start stuff and then lose interest halfway through. And actually, I'm like, I want to see it through. And I want, I'm also a big believer if something's worth doing, it's worth doing well. Uh, I would, you know, I want to make a good job of it. I want to make sure stuff looks professional. I want to make sure it, you know, it, it serves the purpose. So, yeah, I think those are probably what drive me. I'm not looking, I don't believe I'm put on this planet to, to, to change the world sort of thing. I'm not, I don't believe that I'm out there to transform people's lives. But if I can bring pleasure to people and if I can give them something that is useful to them, then I think that's a job well done. And I know you, you, you said you actually described it earlier as almost sounding selfish, that that was your focus. And yet you then also did back it up saying that it is about the satisfaction of seeing other people succeed that makes a difference for you. Saying that you're not put on the planet to change the world, but actually... Going back to some of the moments and particularly leading the vigil for the Admiral Duncan bombing and also taking your chorus from from pubs to international touring and from the numbers, how do those not change the world? I suppose they do. And actually, I think but what they do is they change individuals. And I mean, in fact, and that's what changed the world would be, I suppose, you know, you can't change the world without changing individuals. I take more joy from something like looking back at the London Game Men's Chorus, which is 20 odd years ago now. Uh, more than that, yikes, 25. Um, it's, you know, I, I know that there are couples who are together because they met in the choir. There are people who came out to their parents because of the choir. We had, as the choir, we played a, we did play a role in some of the campaigning around an equal age of consent and gay marriage, and also challenging um, perceptions of what it meant to be gay, you know, because it was the mid-late 90s were, was a very different environment to where we are now, uh, thankfully. So, yeah, I mean, in, in that respect, I hope it did change, you know, I, I hope it did change people's lives and it helped change people's minds. Um, so, yeah, but I, I'm, I was dri I'm driven by the individual change rather than by the the global change. I'm not. I'm not somebody who seeks to 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 change the bigger picture. I'm more interested in 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 individuals and and what I can bring and give to them. Yeah, the small ripples actually, and and some of them you may not even ever hear from no. or know. No, it's funny. I, there was we have a, a a Facebook group for alumni of the London Gay Men's Chorus, 
uh, and somebody on there six months or so ago said, who, who oh, I did know, I sort of remembered them. And he went, oh, he said, um, I can't remember what the trigger was, but he, he said, oh, he said, when I first rang, I, there was a phone number in the back of Gay Times you could ring if you were interested in joining the choir. And he said, I had to, I had to summon every fibre of bravery in my body to ring that number. And that number was my home phone number. My, you know, it was my home phone number. It was, which was, with hindsight, was actually was probably a mistake having my home phone number published in the back of Gay Times. Anyway, um, but anyway, he rang and he just said, he said in his post, he said, he said, the, the person who answered who I now know was Steve Bustin just made me feel so welcome and so relaxed and so at ease that I knew this was the right thing for me and joining the chorus was one of the best things I ever did in my life. And I just think, well, that, you know, I take huge pride in that sort of thing. Uh, and that to me is, that's a measure of a success um, is, you know, is, is that you're able to bring, because I brought, we, long term, I think we were able to bring pleasure for, to him and security and strength and those sorts of things. And just picking up on on what you were mentioning earlier about the, the two elements or the two focuses that you've got at the moment, the speech club and the critique club. I just want to add my perspective of being in the audience. And it's funny that you said that you get nervous and you can, you're can you concerned that you may get challenged. But I know that we have had some challenges on those calls and that, that there have been some very diverse opinions. And that's what makes it great. Yeah, it does. It does. Um, but it's funny. It is funny how, yeah, I do get, I mean, I do get nervous because there is that thing about I, I'm not somebody of strong opinions, particularly, and I'm not somebody who wants to voice my opinion on, on people. I'm not, you won't find me commenting on huge arguments and discussions and rows and things on social media. It's just not, it's just, I, it does, it gives me no pleasure and I don't particularly feel the need to. Um, so sometimes I find that I'm reluctant to draw a line in the sand and say, this is my opinion. This is how it is. And I suppose when I'm doing something like speech club, because I'm saying this is a good speech and this is why, when somebody challenges to an extent, to a, to a certain extent, it feels like they're challenging my authority or my knowledge or my experience. But in fact, yeah, there is nothing wrong with that. There are no absolutes. There are no rights or wrongs and that sort of thing. You know, there are only opinions and everybody's opinion is valid on the whole. Just it's, I think and that's the thing. I, I do believe most people's opinions are valid or everybody's opinion is valid. How you express it is not necessarily valid. Yeah. You know, if you express it with 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 respect, great. If you respect it, if you express your opinion with rudeness, not so great. And I don't think anybody ever challenges your expertise, Steve, when you're sharing your your thoughts, your insights. That that is a given. That's like this is fantastic. Thank you very much. And we're we're all busy scribing notes for, for every time. I think what what comes out of the conversation is just how different the messages hit in in different ways, which is for me fascinating. And again, with the conversation we're having here about purpose, it, no one is the same. Mm. No, absolutely, and nor should they be. And you know, I, I do think there's a real danger of people trying to copy others in the way they live their life, or the way they run their business, or the way they speak from the stage, or the way they write, or the messages they put across. And you know. I uh, there's there's a lot of wannabes out there, and I think that is one of the the first refuges of the wannabe is is parroting what somebody else says. Um, uh, and I, I you know I think it's particularly true. I think a lot of it comes across in the sort of motivational, inspirational speaking stuff, which you know I I I do not enjoy. It does it does nothing for me. 
Um, in fact, a lot, quite a lot of it I, quite, I actually object to because I think a lot of it is based on bullshit. And I think some of it's damaging, quite frankly. And I think there's an awful lot of um, quackery and fakery and making bold claims and all this sort of stuff. Um, and, and also then you just see lots of people parroting other people and being lauded for it or, or just making, um, what's the word, just making claims that are so vague or so ethereal and that have no substance. And it's not just, not necessarily, I'm not necessarily talking about having, needing scientific substance, which I think it does need, but people, yeah, the whole thing about, you know, I faced a challenge and overcame, therefore you can too. And I'm just like, no, actually, because we're all different. And it's great, you overcame a challenge, brilliant. But just, just, just to, to glibly say, and now you can too, I think is, yeah, that, that winds me up, I have to say, that, so that stuff really winds me up. So, you know, I try not to get into telling other people what they should do and how they should do it um, in terms of living their life. You know, in terms of something practical like public speaking, yeah, absolutely, I'll tell people what I think they should be doing. And it's entirely up to them whether or not they take my advice. Um, it's up to them if people hear me expressing an opinion about a speech, whether or not they agree with it. That's absolutely fine. Um, but, you know, I, I try not to tell people how they should be living their lives because everybody is different. And I object when other people tell me how I should be living my life. Yeah, and rightly so. So the perspective that you bring to your expertise, Steve, is is one of objective or objective versus subjective. There's a fine line between the two of mm. understanding what they want to achieve with their speaking and and then how they then deliver that. You're very much on the practical perspective, right? Okay, this is going to be a, a great way for you to, to deliver it. But the content is very much from the individual. You're mm. just tweaking, teasing out more interesting elements. Yes. I find myself using a lot of phrases like, have you thought of doing? Let's try this. I'm not, I don't, or I certainly try to avoid saying, you need to do this. You know, I will say, we could do with a bit more of this, or this is maybe where we're lacking. What can we do to, to boost it? So I, I mean, I think of myself very much as a coach in that respect. Um, I'm not, and, I, and I'm, I suppose to me, a coach is somebody who will encourage and give people options and allow people to explore what they want to do, rather than somebody who is just going to say, this is what you need to do. I'm not about, I don't want to turn out mini-me's. If somebody said, I can tell you've been through Steve Bustin's Critique Club program, I would worry. Because actually, I want people to come out being themselves i don't want people to suddenly take on the steve buston way of doing things um you know and there are you know there is a well-known american franchise speaking organization um that teaches people to speak that you can spot the people who've been through their program a mile off they only have to walk to the middle of the stage and pause and you go oh right okay yeah i know where they've been um and I and it just that annoys me the fact they're turning out clones and they're turning out this that this is somehow the right way to speak there is no right way to speak. I've seen some people who are appalling speakers deliver the most amazing speeches because actually it's right for them and their delivery is right for them and their content is right for them. Wouldn't work for somebody else, but actually it's about what's right for them. And, and that's what I always seek to find is what's right for them and by extension, their audience. So authenticity is, is at the core here. Um, yeah, or is that a I, word I, you're not? It, yeah, it's funny. It's a word I recoil from slightly, partly just because it's so overdone, and I think it comes out of the 
self-help, personal development stuff. Because um, actually, try and, try, and, try and define authenticity, and it's very difficult. Um, and I, to me, it is just, it's about making the best, it's finding the best in people, playing to their strengths. Um, and yeah, there's an element of being more them. Um, you know, that, 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 that's, that's always interesting to be able to pull out and allow, you know, I want to help people have more fun. I'm working with somebody at the moment through the Critique Programme um, who is just, has suddenly blossomed because they've realised they can be funny. And they had always understood they couldn't be because they were talking about business topic and that actually it didn't go anywhere. And suddenly they've realised that they can be funny and they're really enjoying being funny and getting laughs. And they now want to get more laughs. And actually, I think their speech, their speaking about a business topic is going to be far more effective. And they'll get booked more often and their audience will get more out of it because they're now having fun on stage and their audience having fun. Um, you know, there are very few speeches that couldn't be improved with a few laughs, quite frankly. You know, even the people speaking on the most, in fact, I was going to say, even the people speaking on the darkest of topics. In fact, I would say the people who are speaking on the darkest of topics absolutely need some humour in there. To, otherwise, you can leave an audience in a terrible state. Um, so, you know, it's one of the things I have seen a few times. I had to persuade a few people away from is crashing the audience into a most appalling state, you know, by telling an appalling story, either without preparing them for it or without giving them some sort of relief afterwards. You know, so it is it is a day. It is one of those things I've seen. And it's something you quite obviously to beginner speakers. Um, you know, suddenly they just tell this most appalling story, which, you know, uh, which I'm sure, you know, and which is obviously incredibly real to them. But, you know, an audience has to be ready to accept a story like that. Yeah, for sure. So we've got a podcast on Horizon. Very exciting. We've got your new product, which is going to take your critique club into a corporate model or a world of there. And we've got more fun outside work. What does that look like? <laughs> um, well, it's, it's a, there's a few things for this year. Partly, we, my husband and I have just had a big house extension and our garden remodeled, um, which is just finished. So I'm about to start planting a new garden, which is as somebody who is, I have a horticulture qualification in my background and I'm a keen gardener. We used to open our garden for charity. So the opportunity to start from scratch is unbelievably exciting, very expensive, but unbelievably exciting. Um, but so I'm about to, I'm literally writing planting lists and shopping lists and things at the moment. I'm just, you know, about to drop certainly hundreds, if not thousands of pounds on plants. But so that's very exciting. And, that, and that's also the garden is my creative space. And it's also my... I don't want to say meditative space, but it's absolutely where I just go to unwind and can be in my own space. John always, my husband always says, um, if the house suddenly goes quiet, he doesn't, you know, he, he, he knows I must be out in the garden. He said, normally if he, he'll find me in the greenhouse, uh, potting up, listening to Radio 4 with a cup of tea, and I'm a very happy man. Um, so more of that. The other thing that we are doing, which may conflict slightly with this brand new garden, is we have a new puppy um, on the agenda. Um, we are just waiting for confirmation from the breeder that the that their their bitch is pregnant, uh, and hopefully we will be getting a pup in mid May, who will probably then having just had spent all this money on new house and new garden. I suspect will come in and dig the garden and chew the corners and all that sort of stuff. Um, but yeah, we have been without a dog for almost two years now, and we're both desperately looking forward to having new dogs. That will that will bring more fun, and that also brings exercise and all those sorts of things, which are also good because walking is, is, is great. Um, and yeah, and actually I'm hoping the podcast will bring more fun as well. Um, what I'm thinking, what I'm looking at at the moment is developing a podcast 
sort of aimed at gay men over 50. Uh, not that I want it to be issue-based. I don't want it to, it's not about sort of, you know, how do we live our lives and, and, and think pieces. It's just our voices don't actually exist that much in the podcast sphere. Um, I went, you know, I've been searching on podcasts to try and find, quote, my voice or people who are living in life as I live it and actually couldn't find it. So I'm just, I'm sort of casting at the moment. I'm, I'm talking to a few friends about coming together to run us. So I want to do a sort of posse type podcast. One of the things where it sounds like you're uh, eavesdropping on a dinner party sort of thing. There's a, I came across a podcast based in New York called Food for Thought, T-H-O-T, which is a group of 20 and 30 something queer writers, artists, thinkers. And you just listen into their conversation. And I've learned so much about their the life as they experience it. And it's made me realize actually how life has moved on and how a new generation is living life in a very different way. And it's just, to me, that's been fascinating. But I just thought when they start then moving up into their 40s and then you know, into their 50s, those voices aren't there. If somebody is you know, becoming a gay man in their 50s and you just want to hear other people, uh, you know, and particularly if you are isolated, maybe, maybe even closeted, I just think I want those voices out there and say it's not, I don't want it to be, a, uh, I want it to be entertaining, not issue-led. It's not, I don't want it to be a sort of self-help thing. So yeah, that's, that's the plan. And I just, I need to make it happen. Actually, it's one of those things that's been sat in the back of my head for too long and I just need to get, make that work. Fantastic. It sounds amazing. And there's absolutely no reason why the puppy will dig up anything in your garden if it's well trained. So <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But be mindful of some plants that may be poisonous to dogs. I'm sure yeah. you've got that on the list uh, already. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. But no, I'm, I'm a huge green finger person myself and I love my garden, but I, you know, I'm looking out at it now and it's, it's all died back and it's like, come on, get going again. Yeah. So, But there is something, there's something nice about the the potential of a garden yeah. at this time of year, particularly because you know, you know you should be starting to see bulbs just coming through, and you know the snowdrops will be in flower very soon. And I've got a few crocuses yeah. in flower and things, and that that sense of progression and and potential, and and knowing that in six seven months' time it will be full and lush and colourful and fragrant and all those sorts of things is part of the fun of it. And I, I sometimes pity people who garden in tropical climates where there are no seasons. Because yeah. actually they don't have that sense. I, I, I've always been fascinated by the turning of the year. And I sort of, I tap into some of the Druidic traditions and, and, um, and things. And just, you know, I, I, that interests me. And, and things like um, equinoxes and solstices and those sort of patterns, I've always found fascinating. And the garden, you know, accentuates that because the garden responds to a lot of those things. Uh, so, yes, yeah, so, I mean, I think by the time this, this podcast goes out, it'll be in bulk which is a, a time of great hope because it's actually, you know, it's about the starting of, of, of growth and new life appearing and things. I love that. And you're absolutely right. So my fabulous Jasmine, which dies back just for one month in the year and then comes back in force. It's, I think it's a Fiona sunrise was the actual name of it. It's just stunning and it's taken over an entire wall. It's beautiful. So I highly recommend that if you like Jasmine. I was going say, well, actually I have, I am looking for Jasmine's at the moment. So yeah. Um, that what that particular one, Fiona sunrise, I'll, I'll, I'll send you a link because it's just stunning. It's the smell is sensational. It's non-invasive in terms of how you have to push up against a trellis, but it will just keep going. It's fabulous. 
Yes, yeah, and made, it, I planted two small plants, and they're full height a few years later. So okay. incredible, incredible. But yeah, enjoy, enjoy seeing your garden grow, and <laughs> and yeah, a time of great hope. I love that. I think that's that's a might even be the name of your podcast, Steve. Absolutely, it does sound like does sound rather like the um, name of one of the, the Star Wars movies. But... <laughs> it does. Yeah, that was a New Hope, wasn't it? That yeah. was yes, absolutely for sure. Well. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you about why you do what you do and, and that it's very much led from pleasure, which is fabulous. Really, really great. How will people get in contact with you? I'm sure people want to know more about Speech Club, Critique Club. Well, um, my well, my business is called Get Your Voice Heard. So getyourvoiceheard.co.uk. Uh, speech Club, which is the free monthly event where we critique a speech, is speech-club.co.uk. Critique Club, which is the monthly coaching program, uh, is critiqueclub.co.uk. Uh, on Twitter and Instagram, I'm Stephen Brighton. Uh, I don't post a huge amount on either, on those platforms. I've only really just got into Instagram. Um, but if you want to start seeing my garden, that's probably where it'll go is on it, on, on to Insta. Uh, and you can find me on LinkedIn and Facebook as Steve Bustin um, and reach out to me there. Fabulous. Well, I'll put them all in the show notes. So, Steve, once again, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been a really interesting conversation and and I, I love the challenges that you set yourself. I will definitely, in, I know from being in your critique club, I have got some challenges ahead of me this year. So looking forward to those and looking forward to you guiding me as an expert coach on that side. Good. How would you like to close out today's episode, Steve? You have to enjoy life. Life is so short. And I, one of the one of the things that drives me is I always try to say yes. I will try to default to yes, because you never know where that will take you. A no will stop the opportunities, but a yes will open up the opportunities. But I just I will always stop and question myself: Am I gonna, am I enjoying this? Am I going to enjoy it? If not, why do it? Why put yourself something that you're going to hate? Unless there is obviously something that will lead to a pleasure or enjoyment satisfaction later on. Because um, sometimes you know, occasionally we have to do things we don't want to do. But I, on the whole seek enjoyment seek pleasure you know and that absolutely works within business and employment and all those things as it does in your personal life people seem to think that they should be mutually exclusive that somehow you shouldn't enjoy what you do to earn a living i think that's wrong thank you for listening to focus on why with me amy rowlandson to show your appreciation and to help other listeners understand what value you have received from tuning in today please leave me an Apple Podcasts five-star review. Remember, the conversation doesn't end here. To keep it going, connect with me on LinkedIn, Instagram, Facebook or Twitter or join the inspiring, uplifting and positive Focus on Why Facebook group. All the links are in the show notes. Have a purpose, have a plan, Focus on Why.